The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in this sleep of death, what dreams may come, says Hamlet. What does he mean by that? What exactly is the rub? It's the very human fear of the unknown. If we were guaranteed heaven, and we believed in it, then why not end our lives now? Why suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune down here on the earth? Why not just make our way to the celestial paradise? That's not how we view life, or most of us anyway, and yet for some of us, circumstances drive us closer and closer to taking our own life. And for those of us left behind, we struggle to understand what pushed someone over that edge. Even for those of us who don't commit suicide, the clock is ticking. Death approaches, maybe to invite us to play a game of chess. Or maybe just to put his arm around our shoulders and escort us to something unknown. Writers know both kinds of death, natural and suicide. They talk about death a lot. They tell us what they think they understand. They themselves... Many of them have left this earth before us. What lessons have they passed along? What can we learn? What do we know? And can we find inspiration in any of this? Are there any positive messages? Spoiler alert. We can, and there are. Mike Palindrome is here to talk about great literary deaths and famous author last words. Today, on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. This is a heavy subject today, heavy for the holidays. So let's start with a cheery email. This one comes from listener Ted, who purchased me a coffee via our virtual coffee purchasing program, which you can find at historyofliterature.com slash shop. Subject, getting into car crash. <laughs> I didn't quite realize that the subject was not exactly cheery, but the email itself is. Subject, getting into car crashes. Dear Jack, listening to your podcast is like listening to the Vince Guaraldi Trio's A Charlie Brown Christmas Album or arriving at church before anyone else. I accidentally read the 2012 edition of the Cambridge Introduction to Modernist Poetry, <laughs> accidentally read, and was looking for more information about Ezra Pound when I came across your podcast. I would have taken any hack talking about the poet for an hour or so, but I was lucky enough to hear about your illness, how you could hardly move, and how sorry you were that the Halloween episode hadn't been posted yet. I've devoured many other episodes since then and fell in love with the podcast when I heard the one on bad poetry. <laughs> ah, yes. I showed it to my wife, and now mine tongue and thy brain are household phrases, not to make fun of you, but to celebrate your childlike appreciation of John Keats. There is something about hearing you have to pause while reading your earliest work or having to stifle your laughs that makes me want to cheer you on. 
I admit that after hearing these, this episode, I tried to read some of my old poetry to my wife and couldn't. Rereading those lines gave me the sensation that rises in your chest before getting into a car crash. Hmm. I know the feeling. The email continues, There was a moment a couple of years ago, fueled by loneliness and an unfamiliar habitat, when I piled all the books I owned into a pile. I threw them and pulled them off the shelves. I tossed them from the windowsill and hurled them from the end tables until they were amassed, half open and bent shut with twisted spines on my small gray apartment floor. It was the most agnostic I've ever been in regard to the inherent value in literature. I was sobbing and heaving and had to ask myself whether those pages were important or if reading them was just an exercise in narcissism. It felt like one of those where-is-your-God moments. It was a reality check long overdue. I've known plenty of people who don't read. If you ask them what the last book they read was, they'll just say that. I don't read. More than that, I know that these people get along fine. There's no urgent need for literary insight or a mythic revelation they'll find in the back of an anthology of poems. The world of academic committees and writers' retreats and as Pound would say, the literati, is not mine. So the opportunity to discuss Mom or Irving or Frost is stupid rare. I want to thank you for creating a space to inspect and feel and sometimes brood over literature. It's a space where the people can remember the last book they've read and a space where I'm not intimidated by the excessively intelligent. <laughs> well, you won't find that here. <laughs> Maybe from, our, maybe from our guests. The pile of books has since been cleaned up and organized. I've moved, gotten married, gotten a new job, but I still ask why they matter. A highly personal and ambiguous question that would warrant a many-footnoted essay. I don't have the vocabulary or years of experience to write an essay like that, but you and Mike and your podcast have helped me take a shot at the abstract. Idly, Ted. P.S. A soft-spoken host of a podcast about literature is the last person I'd expect to have a penchant for satanic worship in the 70s, but you've proved my intuition wrong. Enjoy your coffee, Jack. <laughs> oh, oh, did I say, did I sign off idly, Ted? Hmm. Okay. Thank you, Ted, for that fantastic email I did in G... Oh, man. I did indeed enjoy my coffee, which I drank as I perused your email. Many thanks to Ted for helping us along here on the podcast, keeping things light before we descend into darkness. One last note before we take a break and welcome Mike back to the show. This is a heavy topic. There are moments of grace in our conversation, and I think it's a worthy topic, one that I was glad to explore if literature couldn't take on death, it wouldn't deserve the status that I've given it in my life, which is a quasi-religious status. Death is inescapably human. Religion's not afraid to take it on and address it. Let's see how literature does. I'm glad to discuss it from this literary angle. On the other hand, I'm aware that this is the holiday season, and holidays can be a real downer for a lot of people. People suffer throughout the year, but the holiday season can accentuate that. Valentine's Day makes 
Single people or recent divorcees feel the sting of their loneliness. Thanksgiving and Christmas and Hanukkah can make unhappy people feel more isolated and alone than ever before, and maybe even, at times, suicidal. If you are one of those people, please hang in there. You are not alone. There is a world of literature out there waiting for you, all those great minds who were looking for people such as yourselves to share something with. You are not alone. There's also a world of people here, right here on Earth, people who value you and love you and are rooting for you. I am one of those people, and I'm sure many of my listeners are in that category as well. So here we go. Let's take a quick break and then explore the world of great literary deaths with our old friend, Mike Palindrome, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining us again is our old friend, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Thanks, Jack. Okay, so I wanted to start out by catching you up on some correspondence we received. We got an email from, or a letter, I guess it was an email from Matthias, who is a new Patreon supporter, which we are very thankful for. Matthias is from Sweden, and he told us that one of his great regrets for 2018 was that he didn't host you for a coffee during your trip there. (laughs) <laughs> and he said that he even said to his girlfriend, Mike is coming to Stockholm. I need to buy him a coffee. And then he didn't. So I'm thinking maybe you need to go back there. Do you have any plans to go back soon? Yeah, I I have uh, a love, love thing for Scandinavia. I just, I just finished another book on Scandinavia, The Almost Perfect People of Scandinavia by a Brit. <laughs> so I was, you know, well, I have the, the Norwegian fjords on my list, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed Sweden. So <laughs> and I, Matthias, I'm going to go back there soon. 
he also requested episodes on Roberto Bolaño and Christopher Isherwood and Don DeLillo and several others. So I think the two of you would probably have had some stuff to talk about. Oh yeah, definitely. I, um, I, I, I have two six, six, six on my list to reread as I, you know, before I do that episode, but mm. definitely. Okay. So let's move on to the next one. Here's one from a listener in Spain. You may be able to guess where this is headed. We've gotten such a flood of emails on this. It's this evergreen topic. I thought we would finally give you a chance to address it. This is from uh, Ines, who is such a, she wrote such a lovely email. She seems like such a kind and earnest person. And she spent uh, several paragraphs talking about how much she's enjoyed the podcast. And then she said she felt compelled to write because... She is now up to, she started at the beginning of the podcast, and she's now up to the episode we did on overrated books that you do not need to read. And she said, your guest at the last episode, I heard, said you could skip reading Don Quixote. And then she wrote in parentheses, number one, with two exclamation marks, because that was, of course, your first choice of books that were overrated and didn't need to be read. And then she said, that hurt. Maybe the translation he read wasn't as good as it should be. Undeniably, it's an old book and and shouldn't be read merely for someone, uh, by someone merely seeking amusement, but maybe from an historical point of view. And she went through, she made some good arguments, and I thought, what do you think, Mike? This little decision of yours continues to rock the literary world. And as the president of the Literature Supporters Club, and as a human being, will you retract your statement that Don Quixote is a book that can be skipped? I could take another look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see which introduction. Well, the, intro- the book, the version I have has an introduction by uh, Milan Kundera. Oh, yeah. Who I love. Yeah, sure. Um, it's one so, of your guys. Yeah. I okay. <laughs> John Ormsby, I think, is the mm. one who... That's the translator? Yeah. Okay, well, Ines, I'm going to count that for you as a victory, that you've, uh, I feel like you've melted a cold, cold heart. And uh, <laughs> we're going to see if Mike will give Don Quixote another chance. Okay, yeah. one more. You remember our perfect listening experience question when we were talking about that? Uh-huh. I think that was with you, right? Yeah. Um, so listener Jason writes in and says his favorite, he couldn't resist sharing it, is sitting on a small ship in the Congo, listening to Anthony Bourdain read Heart of Darkness to me. Conrad is one of my faves, <laughs> and so was Anthony Bourdain, who also loved Heart of Darkness. And I thought that would be good. I've gotten a bunch of these from people, but this one really touched me, and it made me kind of sad. Uh, because we lost Anthony Bourdain, who seemed like such a uh, a strong spirit and such a uh, such a force for good, and I thought somewhere maybe he's talking to Conrad about the light and the darkness, which leads me straight into the, into today's topic: darkness. We're talking about death today, and ordinarily, I kind of like death as a literary subject. It's a very literary subject. It's a very human subject since we are the only animals known to contemplate our own deaths. I heard uh, Billy Collins, I saw the poet Billy Collins give a reading, and he said something 
like uh, this poetry reading is going to be like all poetry readings. I have one poem about my dog and 17 poems about death. <laughs> I think we look to writers for wisdom and truth and in general learning about what it means to be alive, or what it means to be human, what it means to relate to other people. And there's really nothing more human than this awareness we have that we'll someday die. And yet it's a huge mystery, as Hamlet says, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. What happens when we mash these two things together, Mike? Authors we admire right on the edge of their journey to the great unknown. Can we learn anything from them? Is that what interests you about the topic too? I am fascinated by uh, literary suicide. So mm. maybe maybe this is where I'll be attempting to steer this discussion because yeah. it seems like the the passion that writers have um, can be the, the very thing that help, makes them feel hopeless. Mm. And so it it just seems like the depression and the passion seem very much intertwined for writers. Right. Okay. So this suicide I found to be, I mean, I find it to be one of the hardest things in life to deal with. It's such a, it's such a difficult and, and mysterious and um, frustrating thing. I, I don't always know what to think about suicide and some of the, I'll tell you what I did in preparation for this is I collected a bunch of famous last words. I think I was on the the idea mm -hmm. that what we wanted to look at was when authors approached death, did they how did they experience it? What did they come back to us with? Did they see yeah. anything that you know, these people who are known for their powers of observation, known for their powers of communication, did they see anything and explain anything that would give us any insight into? So uh, I gathered a bunch of famous last words, a few dozen of them, and I found some of the hardest ones to deal with were the ones that were associated with suicide. They were so poignant and at times painful and and just, just very difficult to kind of get my mind around. So I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on literary suicides. We can maybe run this like a draft. I don't have five picks. I have, you know, 30 little ones. Um, so mm -hmm. I thought what I we could do is I've broken them all into categories. So why don't you go ahead and mm -hmm. uh, describe your first one, and then I'll chime in with, you know, seven or eight of these famous mm -hmm. last words. I should say... <laughs> When we first started talking about this subject, mm -hmm. I said, I don't know about a draft. Maybe we can't find five good ones. And you said, I have three already. So <laughs> <laughs> was it easy for you to come up with your list? Yeah, I, I kind of, I had so many. I organized <laughs> them by, um, by method of execution. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and we're doing this. Happy holidays, everyone. We're doing this right <laughs> in the middle. Although maybe December, maybe this is the good month for it. Maybe we should all be thinking of, I usually think associate the fall with death, but you know, leaves falling from trees is not really the same thing as an actual death. What happened to me recently was the, the county came by and took out two trees in our front yard that were interfering mm. with the power lines and they were kind of diseased, I guess. And But these were, one of them must have been a hundred years old. 
And it was a real, I came home and they were just stumps raised to the ground. And it really made me think, you know, I talk about the fall and the, the changing of leaves and how great that is and how it also has the association with death and it's it's the period before renewal but it is a period before renewal it's knowing that those trees are going to be green again in the spring but these this experience with these stumps being uh you know with sawdust everywhere and it it felt like those trees are just gone which is a lot more like what death is like but even so maybe we can have we can hit bottom here in December, and then we could look forward to some new beginnings in January. I don't want to depress everyone with, with this podcast episode, but let's see where it takes us. So what's your first category method of execution? Well, it was there aren't that many with this one, but this is such an intriguing one is Mayakovsky um, and uh, Kelly himself playing Russian roulette. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, it, you know, he he had played twice and won, then he played again and lost. But I think probably that's sort of a red herring that he he was he he was um you know if he hadn't done that he killed himself by playing Russian roulette he would have found another way. I mean, he was someone who had been a widely success successful poet, and then after the revolution. The Bolshevik Revolution. He had been um, instructed by, you know, the Stalinist bureaucracy to create um, a particular type of political poetry, and um, he fell into a depression. He refused to write the poetry they wanted. Um, he fell in love with a woman who spurned him, and he decided to end his life. But before he did that, he wrote. Uh, a kind of classic suicide note. I, I was mm. going to read a little bit of it. Um, mm-hmm. he, he wrote, To all of you, I die, but don't blame anyone for it, and please do not gossip. The deceased, deceased dislike that sort of thing terribly. Mother, sisters, comrades, forgive me. This is not a good method. I do not recommend it to others. There is no other way out for me. Lily loved me, comrade government. My family consists of Lily Brick, Mama, my sisters, and Veronica. If you can provide a decent life for them, thank you. And it goes on and on and on. Um, mm. And his funeral was attended by 150,000 people. Wow. Yeah, it was the third largest, they said, uh, public mourning in Soviet history after Stalin and Lenin. Wow. And he was 36 years old. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, being being out of love, being out of, you know, losing his ability to write poetry that was meaningful. Um, He, you know, he calls to mind people like Keats and other Mm. Rimbaud and other young deaths Mm -hmm. and, um, I, it, part of me doesn't know what to make of it because it, at some point some of these deaths become so mythic that it's hard to celebrate separate the the myth with with the actual you know motivations not that you would you could ever really know all the motivations but it it, it is you know it, it's one of those things that I think 
people it fascinates people because you know when you th- when you think of suicide when i was younger i used to think of suicide as um cowardly mm. and i I fear that as I grow older, I think of it as kind of courageous. <sighs> yeah. And it, I know, <clears throat> excuse me, I know what you mean. I, I know that it's, it's not as simple as saying that it's cowardly. Yeah. I mean, it's more complex. Yeah. And even if you have children, because that, that's the response I often get as well. If you have children, surely that, that has to be cowardly to, to leave your children behind. But anyway, we can get to the, I don't, I don't know if I would call it courageous. I don't know if I would go that far. I mean, I guess it can be, but, um, I don't know where to begin with my categories because what we've talked about already sort of fits all of them. So I'll include the one that has a couple of uh, suicide notes in it, which is, this is the category I called poignant, beautiful, or poetic. Uh, Emily Dickinson's last words were, I must go in, the fog is rising. Hmm. Nabokov's last words, and this this one actually kind of reminds me of Mayakovsky in the sense that it, it feels a little performative. Uh, he wrote, or he said, a certain butterfly is already on the wing which I think I think Nabokov had in mind that he wanted his last words to be particularly emblematic of his writing or, uh, yeah. you know. Wow. Jane Austen's sister said to her, what do you want? And Jane Austen said, I want nothing but death. <laughs> which is, uh, poor Jane. Uh, oh, Henry's last words were, turn up the lights. I don't want to go home in the dark. Which is really interesting. He's going home. J.M. Barry, author of Peter Pan, said his last words were, I can't sleep. Which is... <laughs> what? Uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly what that means. Chekhov, uh, he, his were beautiful, especially for Chekhov. His, his last words were, it's been a long time since I drank champagne. His final request was he wanted champagne and morphine. Keats was asked how he felt when he was on his deathbed, and he said his last words were, Better, my friend, I feel the daisies growing over me. And then here I come to uh, a couple of the uh, suicide notes. Hemingway who committed suicide. I don't know if that's one of yours, but uh, uh, his final words were, good night, my kitten, which he (laughs) said to his wife. And then he went downstairs and shot himself. So tender. It's kind of terrifying. Virginia Woolf uh, wrote a beautiful note to her husband, Leonard, and she said, one of the things she said in the note was, I don't think two people could have been happier than we have been. V. Which she was basically saying madness. She was feeling the spell of madness coming over her and she didn't want to live through it again and didn't want to put other people through it again. But it was a beautiful note to her husband who must have been what a note to to receive. Uh, Then a couple that are just more beautiful. uh, L. Frank Baum, the author of Wizard of Oz. His final words were, now I can cross the shifting sands. Just kind of a nice 
poetic image to be thinking of on your deathbed. Uh, Jean Cocteau said, Since the day of my birth, my death began its walk. It is walking towards me without hurrying. And finally, Victor Hugo, this is a really uh, interesting one. Victor Hugo said, this is the fight of day and night. I see black light. Wow. Yeah. So I'm not, I mean, that's almost the opposite of what most people say, right? That they see this this tunnel with the light at the end of the tunnel. But here you're seeing black light. I don't know what that means as far as the the fight of day and night. If black light Mm -hmm. is... Uh, you know which side is winning? Is that is that night? Is that day? What is the black light, or is that the the tangle of the two of them fighting? I'm not sure, but I thought it was a very yeah. interesting set of final last words. Okay, so that's that category. What's your next method of execution? Well, I I mine is a, a gunshot to the head, but mm-hmm. I want to. Sp- make it specific it's when you're older mm-hmm. so like and, and it, yeah and i yeah. was thinking of having both hemingway and hunter s thompson oh yeah and that um hunter s thompson so i think they were both in their 60s mm-hmm. and and not to say that 60 is so old but hemingway had been suffering yeah his health had been suffering and yeah. hunter s thompson had been suffering from uh, he had hip replacement surgery and chronic back pain, and yep. And I think maybe back then, sex 60, 67 is perhaps you can make the argument that it's what today eighty is. Mm. Um, and especially the way Hunter S. Thompson lived his life, perhaps like his sixty-seven was eighty. Both uh, of those guys seem to outlive their what their life expectancy might have been. I mean, Hunter S. Thompson certainly could have, he could have easily died in his 20s or, or 30s the way he was treating himself. And Hemingway actually survived a plane crash and he, he lived such a hard life too, such, a, uh, such an adventure-filled life. It's, uh, in some ways, it was a blessing. He lived as long as he did. But yeah, at the end, he had those electric shock treatments and he was not in good shape at the end. His father had committed suicide too, so he always sort of had that as the specter yeah. hanging over him that that there was something not sinful or there was something you know sometimes circumstances warranted it. Yeah, and I think there's something about being older and deciding. Well, I want to pick and choose the time. I want to pick the time when I when my life ends rather than slowly peter out and not to romanticize it, but that there's something that appeals to that, you know, the very logical side of me that, you know, why wouldn't you just decide, okay, at this point, the benefits are out outweighed mm. um, and by, by killing yourself. And, and it, 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 it becomes like this very literary death. I think that it's probably the most literary kind of death to shoot yourself because it's so violent and abrupt. Mm. I, I can't help but thinking that, you know, they, they intended this to be their deaths to be discussed. They, they didn't intend to quietly uh, disappear. Mm. Yeah. Or and, like, like Kerouac had said, uh, I'm a, I want to die. I want to kill myself. I'm a Catholic, so I'm not going to commit suicide. I'm just going to drink myself to death. 
and <laughs> knowing that it would take a while. He's avoiding that abrupt uh, thing that you're talking about. And with Hemingway, because of his his writing is so, it is very much down to earth. And yes, there are um, some pretentious, you know, parts of him. But he was so much trying to be the everyman that death is the great leveler of mm. of all passions, all achievements. I mean that that's the end. And it, the, you know, the, there is something about death that not only writers, but any kind of celebrity, you know, they, they start to think like, well, what really is the purpose of all of this? Yeah. You know, and, right. um, it's, it, it, it's an interesting thing that writers who've accomplished so much grapple with, mm-hmm. you know, with the recent death of like Philip Roth, you think of all the books that he wrote and, will they stand the testament of time? Will, will they, will he be remembered? And people lose sight of the fact that he had this amazing life. Yeah. And we're judging him by the books when it's really not the way you judge like your father. I mean, you don't say right. like, well, what was his, <laughs> what, what was his resume? Right. You know? The average <laughs> funeral oration is not somebody Standing up and, or they're not getting up and saying, by the way, this person will be totally forgotten 50 years from now. They get up and they say, you know, they've lived a happy life. They lived a, a meaningful life. They were a, a, a great family member. You know, they touched a lot of people. We remember them fondly. You know, that's how we measure an average person's life. Yeah. You look at a an author and you don't think... um like say John Updike, you know, you look at John Updike's life and you don't say, boy, he lived the sort of life that most people, most writers would just dream about living. He could write for the New Yorker. He, he was free to write all these novels. He, he published so much. He was so successful. And in his day, he could, you know, he had all the praise and all the accolades. That's, that's almost besides yeah. the point. Everybody instead says, you know, maybe the rabbit books, maybe A and P, maybe there's a few things that are going to survive, but you know, a lot of it is just going to already sort of fallen by the wayside and maybe his weaknesses are going to end up kind of, uh, making him a minor author. And you know, that's, which, which you, which, which you can do, you can do, but you have to do the other you know, you you have to do the other um, uh, assessment of of their life, and just think that he probably had a pretty pretty incredible life. Yeah, David, he lived his... like a literary king. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that. So what I'm getting to is that I think Hemingway's life. I think a lot of people would trade their lives for Hemingway's life. I mean, he he lived in an astounding life, mm. um, yeah. and for the suicide to loom over it. It's it's really um, to me it's kind of a head scratcher, you mm-hmm. know. So I talked about Hemingway's uh, last words already. Again, it's this thing that we talked about with Hemingway is that all the for all the manliness, there are these places where there's sensitivity just creeps in. And he said, "Good night, my kitten." Uh, <laughs> to his wife, here's Hunter S. Thompson. He wrote a famous suicide note 
Mm -hmm. uh, which he titled Football Season is Over. (laughs) (laughs) And part of it says, no more games, no more bombs, no more walking, no more fun, no more swimming. 67. That is 17 years past 50. 17 more than I needed or wanted. Boring. I am always bitchy. No fun for anybody. 67. You're getting greedy. Act your old age. Relax. This won't hurt. (laughs) It's quite a note. So I will give a few last words. I'll just, since that one was kind of funny, I'll do my next category, which was humorous. Uh-huh. So we had uh, we talked about Voltaire in our Voltaire's episode. He had the the wonderfully funny uh, statement toward the end where he was asked to renounce Satan, and he said, "Now, now, my good man, this is no time for making enemies." <laughs> and the French symbolist Alfred Jerry said, "I am dying. Please bring me a toothpick." <laughs> Dylan Thomas said, this might have been in New York. Maybe this was at the White Horse, a place that you and I have been. Uh, Dylan Thomas's last words apparently were, I've had 18 straight whiskeys. I think that's the record. (laughs) It's just horrible in some ways. Poor Dylan Thomas. I hope none of his uh, family members are, are listening. George Bernard Shaw, George Bernard Shaw, I guess people say, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. Oscar Wilde said, either the wallpaper goes or I do. <laughs> Those are pretty good last words. <laughs> Roald Dahl. Oh, this one was inadvertently comic. He almost had these perfect, beautiful words. He said, you know, I'm not frightened. It's just that I will miss you all so much. He said that to his family members. And they were, you know, it was his, it was his final send-off. And then a nurse was there and was trying to ease his suffering because they all knew he was near near the end after he had said these valedictory comments. And she injected him with morphine to help ease his pain. And when he got hit with a needle, he said, ow, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Salvador Dali was another one who was scripting his, he's not really a writer, but we'll count him. He he was scripting his last words and he said he wanted his last words to be, I do not believe in my death, but instead uh, death overcame him at a, an inopportune time. And his, his last word, he didn't get a chance to say his last words that he wanted. And instead he said, where is my clock? Which is actually <sighs> kind of, kind of good for Dolly given his paintings. Bob <laughs> Hope. Uh, I'm going to count him as a writer because this is pretty well written. His wife asked him where he wanted to be buried, and he said, surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) Which is pretty good. That's funnier than most Bob Hope jokes. Uh, Alexander Pope also told a joke. His doctor examined him and said that his pulse was good and his coloring was good and made all these other positive comments. And Pope said, here lies Alexander Pope dying of a hundred good symptoms. Eugene O'Neill said, I knew it, I knew it, born in a hotel room and goddammit, dying in a hotel room. Uh, I've got two more. Playwright Wilson Misner or Meisner was approached by a priest who said, I'm sure you want to talk to me. And Misner said, why should I talk to you? I've just been talking to your boss. (laughs) And finally, Groucho Marx's last words were, 
This is no way to live. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best. Very good. Yeah, that is good. Okay. So what are we up to now with you? Uh, I have hanging. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's always, I always, I think that is one of the tougher methods. I know drowning is, is supposed to be incredibly painful. Oh, yeah. Um, but to me, drowning seems a lot easier than hanging. Oh, so who who are the writers? (laughs) Well, I focus uh, mainly on David Foster Wallace. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. Uh, which Mm. in in his fiction, there's a, there's quite a bit on depression and there's this little bit that, um, I forget if it it may be from infinite infinite jest, but this this is the quote. One of the characters says a so-called psychotically depressed person who tries to kill herself doesn't do so out of quote, hopelessness or any abstract conviction that life's assets and debits do not square. And surely not because death suddenly seems suddenly appealing. The person in whom its invisible agony reaches a certain unendurable level will kill herself the same way a trapped person will eventually jump from the window of burning high-rise. Make no mistake about people who leap from burning windows. The terror of falling from a great height is still just as great as it would be for you or me standing speculatively at the same window just checking out the view, i.e. the fear of falling remains a constant. The variable here is the other terror, the fire's flames. When the flames get close enough, falling to death becomes the slightly less terrible of two terrors. It's not desiring the fall, it's terror of the flames. And yet no one down on the sidewalk looking up and yelling don't and hang on can understand the jump. Not really. You'd have to have been personally been trapped and felt flames to really understand a terror way beyond falling. Hmm. And there's just so many passages where he he talks so emotionally uh, about depression and yeah. killing yourself that you 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 kind of cheer for him that he he isn't killing himself and then he he up yeah. and does it. Yeah, it's that was one of the categories I have uh, were. Situations where the last words were revelatory about the author as a person or about the author's work, it fits in a way. It closes a, a chapter or it it confirms something or it, it tells us something new about them that um, is not a, a total shock or surprise, that it sort of fits right in with who they were. And that seems like, it seems like this um, example that you're giving of David Foster Wallace sort of falls into that category. Yeah, yeah. No, I was I was just gonna say that for someone who is very uh, aware of the way um, people would interpret his death, Mm. you 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 would almost have hoped that he would have just disappeared. That he would have. I I I mean, as someone who has read a lot of his work and, and and very much enjoy it. I don't know. I, I guess I was cheering for him for to just move to you know Tibet and just disappear. Mm, because in some ways, it detracts from the work to know that he actually 
succumbs yeah. to it eventually. Yeah. Yeah. There's something that, um, well, because while he was making it, it was heroic. While he was a survivor, it was heroic. And then when you hear that he gave in, yeah, uh, yeah. When they when they asked his sister, uh, who is a you know, she's a professional, she's a lawyer. She, they asked her after um, the news of his suicide broke. She said that you know she was incredibly, incredibly sad, but knew it was coming or something to that effect. Yeah. Which is, you know, again, a, a, just another level of sadness. Yeah, it really is. It's so, and Martin Amos said something interesting. It was in one of those books he wrote. It was like a mystery where he, he wrote, do you remember when he wrote that mystery? Uh, and it was mystery kind of the, train. I think I'm, I'm probably was it read. Mystery, was it called mystery train? <laughs> it was, it was about a suicide. And the point that he was making was that it can be harder for us to deal with a suicide than it is for us to deal with a murder. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that when we contemplate a murderer, we know they have one victim and they took one life. But when we talk about a suicide, it's somebody who takes all lives, that they are, you know, obliterating all of the people that they knew. They want them all gone from their own life. You know, that it's, it's almost harder to think that someone doesn't want to be with us and doesn't want to continue that. Yeah. Uh, I think there's there's probably something to that. So let me give my last words on the, uh, or the, the author's famous last words for those who kind of, fa- their last words resonated with their work or with them as, a, as an author. James Joyce's last words were, does nobody understand? <laughs> <It's kind> of, <laughs> for the author of Fitting His Wake, it's kind of an interesting... Uh, Set of last words. Uh, Kafka, who was trying to get someone to give him a lethal dose of morphine, said, kill me or you are a murderer. <laughs> Which is just incredible. It's only Kafka, I think. He's maybe the only person ever who ever lived who could have come up with that line. Kill me or you are a murderer. Uh, Tolstoy said, I love many things. I love all people. And sometimes he's quoted as his last words as being, but the peasants, how did the peasants die? (laughs) Uh, Aldous Huxley wanted to be, his last words were LSD 100 micrograms because he was, he wanted to be zooming on LSD at the moment of his passing. He thought that would help ease the transition. (laughs) Uh, Ibsen, one of your favorites, uh, his last, his last words. You know his last words. They yeah. were uh, on the contrary, and he was responding to his maid, who suggested that it seemed like his health was improving. So he said, "On the contrary," and then died. <laughs> Which is, imagine if you were the poor maid who uh, had provoked that comment. Uh, Melville is one of the few writers I could find who were, he was in his own fictional world, and his uh, his last words were, God bless Captain Veer. <laughs> and they found out later he was, he was thinking of his story, which hadn't yet been published. He was still working on it. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson said, what's that? Does my face look strange? Which is kind of eerie for the author of Jekyll and Hyde to say. Here's one I like. 
Lope de Vega, Renaissance playwright, said, quote, All right then, I'll say it. Dante makes me sick. End quote. That's his, those were his <laughs> last words, which is pretty awesome that he, he got it off his chest before moving on to his great reward. That's really good hating that he, he kept it in all those years and finally, okay, now I have nothing to lose. I'll just say it. Dante makes me sick. Byron had some forebodings of death and initially resisted the treatments. He's called the doctors a damned set of butchers, but allegedly he rallied at the last moment declaring, quote, come, come, no weakness. Let's be a man to the last, end <laughs> quote, which is very Byron that he was, uh, you know, he had had that uh, debilitated foot and he was, he was always trying to make sure that he was living his fullest life and, and fulfilling what he viewed as his masculine duties and that kind of thing. So, uh, then there was an account of Byron's death, uh, which gives kind of a, a different set of last words where uh, Thomas More said, it was about six o'clock in the evening of this day when Byron said, now I shall go to sleep. And then he died. And finally, Truman Capote's last words were, mama, 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 which I think is... <laughs> gives us a little insight into Capote. So that's it for that category. So what's next in the method of execution? I have to say, I'm sort of starting to dread these because <laughs> each time you mention a method, it just fills me with um, sadness and, and horror. <laughs> I'll, I'll turn it around. Okay. At the, at the end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and well, I have, a, I have a positive way to end this as well. So, Listeners, hang in there. We're we're gonna get to some sunshine. We're going through December, and we're, we're going through the winter. We'll soon get to some spring. Well, the the next method has to be gas mm. and uh, Sylvia Plath. Uh, Sylvia Plath and and Sexton and yeah. probably many others. But I I always think of uh, Lady Lazarus, the poem by Plath. Um, there's three stanzas that go dying is an art like everything else i do it exceptionally well i do it so it feels like hell i do it so it feels real i guess you could say i've got i have a call it's easy enough to do it in a cell it's easy enough to do it and stay put it's the theatrical comeback in broad day to the same place the same face the same brute mm. um it's and this is this category with, with for Plath. She had two young children. Oh, she had two young children. She had such children. it's such a famous literary death. It really was. It's just iconic. I mean, it, and because she yeah. was married to a poet, and it raised a lot of issues. And there's been a lot of battles about what their marriage was like and whether he contributed in any way. And and just the fact that she had these these two small children she herself was very young and very uh charismatic and and admired and successful and and uh it's just such a um it's almost it's defining in a way for her i mean it's so it's so intertwined with what we think of her as a poet is the circumstances of her death 
Yeah, I mean, and this one will always be for me the most unexplainable mm. um, un, un, or unacceptable. I, I just can't accept it. I mean, it's... Um, well, it it's, was probably, I mean, depression and, and me mental illness. And it's, yeah. it's, I mean, when you know people, they're still, they're good parents, they're loving, they're... It's just a, a horrible, uh, a horrible thing that's happening inside their mind that forces them to take such drastic action. Her her poems were so incredible. You know, even if you, you take someone, take writers who who neglected their families and neglected their children and neglected their friends, and mm. and you you wonder about people who are able to do that and compartmentalize their lives and then you take somebody like Sylvia Plath who she, she was just everything was sunken by her depression that she wasn't able to mm -hmm. she wasn't able to turn to one part of her life I mean uh, it's just yeah, it, it, it's so hard to think of her without thinking of that suicide yeah I knew a, a family where there were girls both in school and the mother committed suicide and mm. they found that she had purchased this was like in a like in the spring or something and they found that she had purchased christmas presents and wrapped them for the girls oh, and it was man. because she knew she wasn't going to be there for it and it's it's just one of those things it's just a haunting experience you know it's it's hard to say that that's cowardly or that that's selfish or anything like that you just think this is a person who's going through something that i've never had to go through and and hopefully never will and that i just it, it's unimaginable what it must have been like to be her yeah it's uh, i mean and and the the Ted Hughes thing, it's uh, you know, I mean we we don't have time to go into the whole controversy with his poetry and yeah. um, his behavior, but it, it you know you you think of yourself surrounded by other literary types and other writers, and it's it, it, it's it's a strange profession. It's a strange yeah. profession psychologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And there's that, that feeling, you know, when there is help and when there's medication you can take, uh, but there's this sort of feeling of, well, does it, does it dull you? Does it even you out? Does it flatten your experiences, which may be good? It may help keep you stable, but it mm -hmm. may also, I think a lot of writers worry that it, it will interfere with their writing. It'll interfere with the, they need the highs and lows that that's, that's essentially the inspiration that they feel. And so sometimes writers, I think can be vulnerable to having to struggle to know what exactly is the right treatment or the right care they can get for their illness. Mm. That actually reminds me of a quote by David Foster Wallace. Um, uh, I have to paraphrase it because I don't remember the exact words, but he, he basically says that, you know, he's dated writers and that 
it, it's it's horrible dating writers because when things are going well, normally he wants to be left alone. But when the writer he's dating, things are going well for her, she wants to be left alone and he wants to chase her. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. he says, we're constantly off. We're right. not in sync. You know, we both want to be left alone at the wrong, at the very moment when we want to, we, we're seeking each other's company. Yeah. Right. Well, since you mentioned um, Plath as being the the most inexplicable, I luckily have I have two categories left. I want to end with the fifth one, but I'm going to use this one now, which is mysterious. I had some mysterious last words or mysterious deaths, and I'll start with Edgar Allan Poe, who was in and out of consciousness, and he's quoted as saying a few different things. Uh, Lord, help my poor soul is one of them. But another one that he said was, he who arched the heavens and upholds the universe has his decrees legibly written upon the frontlet of every human being and upon demons incarnate, (laughs) 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 which is kind of beautifully cryptic. And then finally, the big mystery is that he called out the name Reynolds repeatedly but nobody knows who Reynolds was. None of the people at the time, and nobody has been able to figure it out since uh, who he was talking about when he kept yelling Reynolds. Uh, I have two more mysteries. Henry David Thoreau, his final words were moose, Indian. No one knows what he what he was seeing or what he was thinking about or what he meant by that. Okay, Gertrude Stein, this is perfect for Gertrude Stein. She's She said... What is the answer? And nobody said anything. So she said, well, in that case, what is the question? (laughs) Which is great. Okay. I think we're on to the final one. I'm glad. I I don't know if I could take much more of this, Mike. (laughs) Um, I, I... I guess alcoholism. I mean, that's oh, probably yeah. that, that. This is the way I thought we'd le- leave on a positive note. That, <laughs> <laughs> that if 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 you know, I guess many people have said that if, if there is a way, if there is a fun way to commit suicide, it's uh, it's slowly yeah. and it's taking it all in. And you know, you think of Carver and Exley and Fitzgerald, John Cheever. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah, but I'm going to disagree with you a little bit here by saying that even though that might be fun for the people, it seems to wreck a lot of havoc on the people who are close to them as they're going through it. Yeah, no, I, 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 I say it kind of, in, you know, in jest. I mean, it's, it's Carver talks a lot about how um, the best writing he did was after he was sober. He was sober for uh, until his death. Yeah. Um, over a decade and happy he was so much yeah. happier you know he thought it was so much better yeah and then it all kind of caught up to him yeah i mean it's alcohol is interesting because it's to me it's kind of a litmus test of your personality mm. um the the kind of self-control it takes not to have a drink say in the morning yeah is kind of your basic minimal level of self-control you'd expect from an adult. Mm-hmm. But then the kind of self-control it would take to not have several more drinks when you're already drunk. Right. It's kind of this gray area where 
you know, I don't know what the percentages are, but you, you, you find a lot of adults who don't have that control. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Once they get started, then it's, they go till they black out. Yeah. And alcoholism is fascinating to me because it's, in a way, a kind of routine, and writers are constantly struggling for a routine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know how many writers right. had a had a cocktail after they had finished their their day's work. But there, there there is a part that I probably romanticize too much about alcohol and writers. Mm. Well, yeah, and there, I mean, it fits right in with Fitzgerald and Cheever and all these people you mentioned. They were they were almost. Um, you know, they were so tactical and, and as you say, they were it, the routine aspects of it and the, okay, well, I won't, I won't drink hard. I'll only drink beer until three o'clock and, and then I, I won't start any hard liquor until after that, or I, I won't drink until lunch and, you know, that kind of, or I'll have two drinks at 5 p.m. and, you know, that, that kind of, mentality is people who are really struggling to be productive and not to give in to, I think what they probably recognize is their tendency to just slip away into alcoholism. So my positive to end on my, my attempt at ending on a positive note is to, I think there's something about uh, reading about all these suicides that at least maybe it's my personality, but to me, makes it very unappealing mm. that mm-hmm. it to 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 think that yeah you you might i i fear i might be remembered for the way i died it seems like the most awful thing yeah <laughs> yeah i'm glad that you said that because one of the things i worried about as we were talking here is you know a uh-huh. subject like this when you talk about all of these writers who committed suicide, it it might risk glamorizing it or making it seem like, you know, for someone who's out there, like a, a good option or uh, yeah. something to, to follow their heroes into. Uh, but this, I think you're right. I have the exact opposite reaction, which is it makes me so sad that it pushes me away from the idea. Yeah, I, I I was being a, a bit serious when I said that uh, you know, just the disappearing appeals to me. Mm. That um, I wouldn't be a burden on anybody, but I wouldn't have created this huge splash, uh, you know, just you know, by committing suicide, I would just kind of disappear. So m- maybe that's in the cards for me. You many years down the road. <laughs> I'll just quietly disappear somewhere. And maybe it will let uh, people around you imagine what they want. They can imagine that you're still alive and happy. They could imagine that you're, um, that you're at the bottom of the ocean, I guess, whatever, whatever they think, whatever they think they need to would, uh, would help. Someone told me that there are parts of the Alps that are utterly uninhabited. Hmm. That you know, um, so I, I always thought that that might be a nice place to end up. Yeah, and disappearance. There's some great disappearances in literature. I mean, Elena Ferrante has got the disappearance yeah. in her book. Um, the uh, the other the disappearance um, in the Hawthorne story, 
where uh was it Waverly? I think it was is that what it was called? I think it was called Waverly, where it was uh-huh. the guy who uh it was based on a real story about a guy in London who left his family and they didn't know where he was for twenty years or something. And he was mm-hmm. living like three streets over. <laughs> and he had he had a whole he had a whole nother family. And he had just disappeared from one family and but he had been living so close uh-huh. and they never knew, uh, which is just uh incredible. It's a great short story too. Yeah, I mean there you know, Joshua Ferris has a novel that I, I haven't read, but I've been meaning to about a guy who gets up goes to is heading toward work towards work and then decides not to go in and then goes to walking across country mm, yeah <laughs> and of course josh ferris friend of the show uh i don't remember the number of the episode but you could hear the interview with him we had a nice talk about nabokov and freud oh uh, yeah he's a big he's a big fan right of nabokov yeah i thought yeah. you were going to say of the podcast Um, (laughs) that too uh okay so while we're on this positive note i'm gonna end with my final category which were inspirational last words and these were really the ones that i was hoping to find um so Mm -hmm. this is these these are good so adam smith uh said i believe we shall adjourn this meeting to another place which is kind of nice kind of a nice confidence there william hazlitt said well I've had a happy life, which I hope we can all be so lucky as to have as our last words. Christina Rossetti said, I love everybody. If ever I had an enemy, I should hope to meet and welcome that enemy into heaven. Oh, man. Very nice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You say that like that's the last thing you could imagine yourself saying. I'm thinking that's going to be, I'm going to say something similar. Maybe that's the difference between the two of us. (laughs) <laughs> I, I i guess i should I, I could possibly mention a few things but this is being recorded so i'll have to just tell you that in person <laughs> okay uh elizabeth barrett browning was asked how she was feeling and mm-hmm. she said beautiful and then her last words were it is most beautiful mm-hmm. which is really nice and then i'm gonna end with uh, Steve Jobs, who's not really a writer, but a famous figure, the founder of Apple. And his last words were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. <laughs> Which hopefully he was having a, a vision of what it was like and one that we will all face when it's our time. That's nice. I've got a bunch of others here of people who weren't writers, but I think I'm going to skip those. And I'm just going to say, I think my last words when it comes time are going to be, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Or maybe Mike, thanks for joining me on the history of literature. (laughs) Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Mike, as always, for joining us. What a difficult but necessary topic. What else even comes close? Love, maybe? Faith? Sex? 
What other topics? Parenthood, I guess. What other topics are even in that category with death? It was kind of a tough one. I'm glad you stayed with us. Next week, I promise something cheerier. Although sometimes promises can only take me so far. (laughs) You can't choreograph the muses, as a listener recently wrote. Somewhat sympathetic to my plight. Or at least that's how I chose to take it. So, farewell everyone. We'll be back next week. And I hope you will be as well. Let's celebrate life even as it's cold, even as it's wintry, even as our planet tilts away from the life-giving force that we call the sun, at least for those of us living in the north. The tilt, that is, not the calling it a sun. We're part of something grand and huge, something cosmic, and it's worth sticking around to see what happens. And along the way, let's be as good as we can and as full of light and joy as we can manage, and let's do our best to fill the planet with understanding and empathy. Happy holidays, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.